The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Murder Bookies. I am back, and I am doing an interview with Clay Bryant, the author of Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well, and Right Off the Presses, released in May 2023. The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill. Clay Bryant is really one of my favorite people. So a little bit about Clay Bryant. He was born and raised in Trope County, Georgia. He began his law enforcement career in 1973 as a radio operator with the Georgia State Patrol. And he became eventually the youngest trooper in the state. He took over as chief of police in Hogansville, where he served for the next 12 years. And he goes on to have a phenomenal career. Uh, his cases have been chronicled on 48 Hours Investigates, Bill Curtis's murder book. He's been in the newspaper. Listen, I, I am a huge fan here. There's no denying that. And I'm really thrilled that he's uh, agreed to sit down and talk with us. Chief Bryant, welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm sure I'll enjoy it. I hope so. I hope everyone enjoys what we're going to talk about. One of the things that struck me, it's like a theme that runs through both of your books, is the wisdom of your dad, Buddy Bryant. <laughs> I just found it so profound. Simple little messages. He was a common sense man. He was a people guy. He was sort of a cross between Andy Griffith, uh, Chief Gillespie, and Will Rogers, actually. I guess you could say I think so. I enjoyed that so much. It reminds me of a lot of things that my grandma and grandpa used to say to me when I was growing up, just a joy. The one that I was glad I wasn't drinking coffee when I was reading it was when he was talking about toxic relationships. And he said, you know, love is a, a dewdrop from heaven. Do you remember that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, he and I, he, he was riding with me. I was on the state patrol and we were just, my dad and I talked about everything, you know. We were talking about love's lost and things like that and in relationships and good ones and bad ones. And he chuckled and he said, son, he said, love is but a dewdrop from heaven. Problem is, it's just soon falling a horse turd at the head of geranium. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, my gosh. It explains so much, right? He, he had a, a, a saying or some some knowledge for every every occasion. There were so many that a situation will come up and, you know, it'll be a certain thing. And all of a sudden, the thing that applies to it came back from daddy. I, I was very, very blessed to be raised by the parents that I was. That's wonderful. Sadly, it's gotten a little bit off kilter in a lot of ways. We'll start with Wendelin Moore because you wrote that book first, and then we'll get into Fred's story. You are 15 years old 
Yes, ma'am. You are going to ride with your dad to this crime scene. Right. You knew a body had been found. I'm assuming being raised as a cop's kid, you probably had seen a few things and you were kind of prepared, you know, because you describe this poor woman's body being lifted out of this well. What's going through your mind? I mean, you talk about that agony your dad is experiencing because it's just over the border. So it's not technically his case. But what are you thinking? Gwendolyn's the two older boys. They were a year younger and two years younger than me. We were we went to school together and you know, I I knew them, uh had contact with them all the time in school. We were living in Hogan'sville, Georgia, it's small town USA, you know. Basically it's Mayberry. And you know everybody and everybody knows you. But everybody also knew the tragedy of the Moore household and what that poor woman was enduring. And uh it was sad, so sad. It was Alan and Larry were standing over by the well as her mother was brought up out of the grain. And it was just, it was, it was macabre and it was awful. I was raised on the seat of a police car with my dad. And uh, I'd been exposed to a lot of things. and But this, the thought of what those boys were going through at that time was just, it was somewhat devastating, not as much the fact of what you were looking at, but the result that you knew that was going to come from. Yeah, I, I really, I can't imagine. I know my heart goes out to everybody involved in these kinds of situations. Now, here we are, 32 years later, you have an opportunity to right this wrong because nothing happens for 32 years. The okay. investigation is lackluster. Oh, it was it was derailed. You know, it was the only reason the man was not prosecuted is they did not want prosecuted. And uh, you'll come to understand that in reading the book itself. Back in the sixties and early seventies, it was still a carryover from the old guard. You know, and you think it's unique to your home, but it was everywhere. You know, but times have changed a lot, and I was blessed. My dad, he had such some strong feelings about this case, you know. He uh, Every time we'd see Marshall Moore, I've I heard him make the statement several times. He, he should be on death row in Tattanoa County. That was read for where the state prison was, where they got execution. You know, and he, and he would come in about the treatment that she'd endure. And uh, it was so strange. I'd been to work at the district attorney's office as an investigator. I think I went to work on the 15th. They start, you know, the first and the mm-hmm. 15th in a state job. The strangest thing, phone rings. And it's an investigator from the sheriff's office. He says, you know, Clay, he said, do you remember back years ago in Hogan'sville that there was a lady found in a well just outside Hogan'sville? We can't find anything related to it. And said, this young lady has came in and she has a death certificate for an aunt that she never knew she had. And it's just like the case never existed. And I surprisingly said, not only, Larry, that I remember it, I was standing there when she came out of the well, and I called her by name. And he said, that's absolutely right. It's on the death certificate. And the death certificate was very, very descriptive. The pathologist at the hospital wanted someone 
it was marked homicide. It showed the wounds and mentioned the fact that she'd been beaten the few days before and had stitches in her head and just, you know. It laid then, it out. Yeah, and and then it went completely and totally flat. Alan Moore, one of the profound things, he was being interviewed by an investigator at the time. And this 14-year-old boy tells the investigator, he found his mother where she had hid the night the night that she was killed, found her hiding under a neighbor's house. He found her, he said her eyes were swollen shut and she was, you know, had blood out of her nose and mouth. It's just so awful, you know, how much can a kid endure, you know? Mm. Every time I think about it, it just takes me back to a place to where it's hard to believe. Yeah, it's hard to believe that was allowed to go on. I mean, uh, things have changed. Things have been cleaned up. It's not that kind of corruption. At least I don't believe is widespread as it was at the time. It's not. Times have changed. But every once in a while, you still... The human animal is still a human animal. Yes, Uh, yes. But I'd been at the DA's office for, I think, nine days. I hadn't thought about this case in forever. My dad and I were real close. Every time, birthdays and holidays and his birthday, he'd always come to mind. For whatever reason, on this birthday, it was 2002. I was distracted with the new job, and I hadn't thought about it. And uh, when they sent me the death certificate that day, lo and behold, on the fax line on the top, it gives the date, the time, and so forth, and the addresses. I look up, and it's October the 24th. It's my daddy's birthday. And throughout my career, there are things I just can't explain. I mean, in in my books, you'll read some of those things. Mm -hmm. You can call it. Dumb luck, coincidence, and I like to think it's just nothing but divine intervention. The Lord picks times and places to try to make things right, and sometimes if you're lucky enough, you're the vehicle to do that. And I was mm-hmm. blessed in, in these cases with that situation. And, you know, in my books, a little different from some other folks, most true crime writers write off reports and interviews, and they're not emotionally involved in the case. Because of the way that I investigate, I get to know the, the victims' families, and, and they're, they're victims just as well. And I try to get to make an emotional connection with them. And that way, I always say that the way to solve these cases is you pick up the baggage and you get with them and you acquire that feeling of abandonment, frustration, anger fact that there's no answers to be had and Mm -hmm. if you assume those things it kind of gives you the drive to go forward in the case like a motivation absolutely it it, like i said it it gives you the motivation because you have empathy and you feel for these people because they're still hurting you know 32 years later i'm standing on the side of the road talking to alan moore a man that's by now he's in his 50s, he's a 20-year veteran of the Navy. He's, he escaped his father. He went and lived with an aunt, and uh, she signed for him to go in the Navy when he was 17 years old. And it's just... It's wrong. When I'm talking to him about the case, I met him down around Cordell, Georgia. He was living 
down in South Georgia, and I called him, and it was, he said it was like a lightning bolt from the past. And I said, Alan, I want to talk to you about your mother. He met me, and this man sits there, and he cries like a baby. He says, uh, you know, he said, I felt guilt about this for 30 years, Clay. He said, uh, when I found my mom, if I had just taken her by the hand and went with her then, of course, she told him she'd be okay and this and that. He carried that. He carried that for thirty years. That awful, awful spectacle that he had to that he had to be with there. It was his fault. Yeah, kids absolutely. always seem to take on their parents' burdens. If I had just done this, then mom would have been okay. If I had, if I had stood up to dad, if whatever the what ifs are, they carry that. You know, today we get them into therapy and things which, of course, depends on how cooperative and how much they even want to do it. But back then, there was nothing. Well, like I said, there was roadblock after roadblock. Well, it really wasn't even a roadblock. In order to have a roadblock, you have something. You know, there has to be yes, some traffic. <laughs> and there was be a road to block, yeah. That's, yeah. You know, so he came to me, and I started contacting members of the family. Of course, then there are some members of the family that stood by him. Which was to be expected. He and his new wife, they had, they had a son. And, uh, when Gwendolyn was killed, she actually had a newborn and they raised the newborn. And, uh, even though there was some talk about that the new wife suffered some of the same, but nothing to the extent that Gwendolyn did. Of course, she had some ties to some people that if he had done that, <laughs> Retribution would have been swift and certain, but and the book lays that out, you know. So I, again, I was I was blessed. We hit some roadblocks along the way, but every time we'd hit an impasse, it was just like my dad would whisper something in my ear, you know. Mm-hmm. And the direction would change, and we were able to soldier on. And in this case, first the first night problem that we had was. The death certificate, the coroner, who was, you know, elected official back then, and it was a rubber stamp or whatever the sheriff wanted, and he said she accidentally fell in a well, and we had to get past that. We exhumed her body. She'd been down for those 32 years, and uh, Dr. Richard Snow, he was a criminal anthropologist, and we exhumed the body to, to the Georgia Crime Lab, and it was examined there. And it was determined that things the pathologist said way back when actually went toward what was found in the skeletal autopsy. How it was crushed. It was an absolute textbook manual strangulation. Mm-hmm. In the original autopsy, with what we expected to find was some fractures in her skull and some things like that. But we didn't. And as pathologist was washing the remains, he'd take the coffin was full of water and sludge, and he was anatomically correctly building her back on an adjacent table. And he took the skull, and he cleaned it up, and he said, don't see anything. If we don't have a cause of death, we just out of luck. We're going to be able to establish that. And, uh, 
myself and Linda Caldwell, who was, she was going to prosecute the case. Linda's an excellent lawyer. And uh, we literally slid down the wall in the morgue and had tears in our eyes when he said that. I remember reading this, and yeah. I, I'm white knuckled holding the pages of the book as I'm like, oh my, oh my God, they don't have, how is this going to unfold? He puts the skull back and he starts down, putting the vertebrae back together as she as, as it goes down toward her torso. And he says, uh-oh. He said, this is evocative. And then he said, nope, this was murder. And how I was crushing it, like I said, it was a textbook fracture of both wings of it. He said she was manually strangled. And the autopsy said, you know, it meant it mentioned petechial hemorrhages and stuff at the time that it was done, which was consistent with manual strangulation and anaerobic metabolism. And it was what we needed. And uh, then, of course, we talked to so many people and people that had witnessed the beatings and that kind of thing. One one in particular, the folks next door, Miss Chelsea Turner and her three boys, Ronnie, who was actually my age, graduated high school together. Ronnie was on the porch. And when I interviewed him with 32 years post the event, you know, and everybody will tell you really quickly that eyewitnesses are sometimes totally off. That's not the best evidence in the world. But sometimes it is. And I was really astounded that he described what she was wearing, what was taking place. And I felt maybe he's embellishing this story a little bit, you know. Right. And it, it, at the conclusion of our interview, I said, Ronnie, you saw this one time 32 years ago, bro. He, he described a white blouse, yellow shorts, barefooted. And, and I said, how can you remember that seeing it one time 30 years ago? He said, Chief, I didn't see it one time 30 years ago. He said, I've seen it nearly every day for 30 years. You can't get much more profound than that. Yeah. And, you know, as the case, you know, there were just so many things and so many people contributed to finding some justice for her. And in the end, he dies of cancer before we can try. And, yeah. But he was charged. If he'd got in the courtroom, he was a convicted man. As I say, uh, sometimes that's going to have to be the kind of justice you get. Not be exactly what you want. But that is justice. Well, the good thing is, you know, the, the terrible things that he'd done were exposed. And mm -hmm. everybody, they saw the evidence that we had. It was one of the highlights of my life to be able to, to write that wrong for Alan. Mm -hmm. And even Marshall, the husband, his sister told me some terrible stories about things that girl had endured. And again, it was just a highlight of my professional career or one of the highlights of it. Yeah. That was, that was the beginning and it led to another one and it led to another one, <laughs> led to another one. Do you think, I mean, Marshall had 15 years of abusing and beating Gwendolyn. 
But that night, he decided to strangle her. Why? Marshall was a man that was full of rage. Yeah. I think at that point, he had already found another romantic interest in the lady that he married later. It was time to get rid of her. Yeah. And, And I don't know that it was a planned thing from every description that everybody ever had of him. He would just go into a blind rage, and he was very violent when he did. And uh, the fact that Gwendolyn had gotten away and hid under the house, and she'd done it before, and he knew that in the past she'd hid under there. I don't know that he sat out to kill her that night, but he did. And uh, it was just a continuation of the longest-running spousal abuse that you could ever imagine literally stomped a child out of her, found the child's grave in Sweetwater Cemetery in Paulding County, Georgia. It's just, and it was always about fear and intimidation and control. Well, she was fearful for her children. Oh, absolutely. He stomped on her seven months pregnant. She loses this baby. She, She has the ability at that point to try to get a divorce. And he comes and grabs the kids and threatens to kill them unless she goes with him. Well, she knows darn well he could kill them. She's scared to death of him, and as well she should have been. Yeah. And he didn't spare the children at all, especially the older boys. You know, they they experienced. Alan said, you know, he said, I saw my mama take a lot of beat for us. He used to tell me one time, one of his little brothers, they went out to the car and he broke the blinker. And his dad flew into a rage, and he said, I thought it, you know, he killed my brother. Or that's what I thought at the time. And he was probably, I would think, 10, maybe 12, maybe a little younger than that. And he said, Daddy got a piece of swing chain and beat him with the swing chain. He said it cut him up, you know. And uh, his mother trying to comfort him and get the blood off his back and this and that. And at that point, Marshall lit into her and beat her unmercifully. said, you know, I wanted You're him. trying to comfort her injured child. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and he was just that brutal. And it was, a, it was a learned way of life. His sister told him that their grandfather killed their grandmother in back in the 30s in Raven County, Georgia. He actually burned her on a pyre on the side of Boggs Mountain up there after chasing her out of the house after a fight. And uh, they never saw grandmother again, but they found where there were some skeletal remains on a makeshift pyre on the side of the mountain. It's uh, being raised by loving parents. You know, you can't even imagine things like that. No, I feel very fortunate to have been raised by the parents that I had. I just know that he may not have been found guilty in the courtroom, but he has been convicted in the final court. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the family members that endured some of this, they were so grateful. Even Marshall's sister, she and Gwendolyn were close. And uh, Marshall's mother, was close to Wendell. When they came that night, you know, she said, well, there was no doubt in our mind. Yeah. 
I guess, as I say, you know, justice delayed and not justice denied. So we were able to. I'll take it. Absolutely. And I was even told by a nurse that was seeing him at the hospital, he'd put the thing off. We started out. He would say he was going to have a procedure done, you know, and he, he had throat cancer. And uh, yeah. I had a, one of his caretakers in the hospital told him, said that he basically starved himself to death other than go to trial. Because Judge Allen Keeble had said to his attorney, we're going to try him if we try to try him on a gurney. Mm-hmm. And he, he went in the hospital after that and said that he wouldn't take any intake of food. And he just got weaker and weaker. Yeah, he's a coward. He couldn't face the music. He couldn't face the truth. When it came time to, to own up and face it, he starved himself to death and was a coward. Well, that's pretty much the way it went. While you are working on this case, you run into Tim Wilkerson. Well, actually, we had made an arrest in the case. Again, one of those unexplained things. We had a, a violent summer storm, and in that storm, the district attorney just bought a brand-new pickup truck, and top of the tree broke out in the wind and crushed the truck. And uh, Tim Wilkerson, whose father had disappeared in 1987, basically 20 years before, I think probably 18-something like that, and without a trace, we took it to his body shop. They get an estimate about the vehicle and whatnot. And he congratulated us. He said, I saw y'all made a, an arrest in, in that old cold case murder. And he said, I, I should, I'd give you anything. Somebody could, could look at my dad's old case. My boss, Pete Scandalaka, said, let's look at it. And we looked at the case over a very short period of time. And uh, they brought all kind of records that showed intertwining of this woman. She was a truly a black widow. And she was uh, a person that would scheme to get anything that she wanted. She was raised in abject poverty in West Virginia, the daughter of a coal miner, raised in a house that didn't have indoor toilets. I think that just made her so materialistic that it was all about whatever she had was hers. She set out to take everything that Fred Wilkerson had. He, his personality was that that would be a perfect victim for her. And she did, uh, took everything the man had. And when he had the audacity to, at the demand of one of his friends that had to pay off some money that he borrowed to build a swimming pool at the new home that he had built, going to be their marital home. She served with a lawsuit on Tuesday try to recoup some of that money. And uh, <laughs> that was uh, Tuesday before Thanksgiving, 1987. And on Thanksgiving night, she killed him. She enticed him over to the house to talk about trying to get some, some, some kind of agreement about this lawsuit. And when he comes over there, she shoots him in the back of the head. And he stays in that well for 17 or 18 years. What was so bad is how callous she was. She had an insurance policy on him that she paid yeah. for seven years, semi-annually, wrote a check to State Farm. I have, I've got copies of the checks. And uh, she had placed that man in that hole 
not a hundred yards from where she laid her head every night. Well, that's what I'm going to say to you. This well is on her property. You pull up in the driveway, you know it's there. You're in your living room, you're in your kitchen. You go to bed at night, you know it's there. <laughs> How do you live with this? Well, man, she, you murdered and you're buried in a well in your backyard. I'm like, it's just mind blowing. Because she is inherently evil. <sighs> For seven years, and as quick as seven years passed, you know, because she had an insurance policy on it, it made her have a vested interest in its estate because the policy was his and she was a beneficiary. So, at seven years, she petitioned the probate court, declaring him dead against the wishes of the family, mm-hmm. so she could get that money. Well, the probate court didn't have any reason to deny it, but during the proceeding, uh, it was the facts of the case came out, you know, uh, and it, one of the things that was mentioned was that shortly before Christmas, Fred Wilkerson's car was found at the Atlanta airport. Well, a young girl that was friends with the Wilkerson's and with Connie Queens and her, her kids, her family, when she saw that in the newspaper, this is seven years later, she said, oh my God, I was asked by Connie to pick her up at the airport on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And I, she saw that and she contacts Tim Wilkerson's attorney and gives that information. So this was in 95, seven years after Fred goes missing. He contacted the sheriff's office and gave them this information. I have no earthly idea why they didn't follow up with the girl, but they didn't. And uh, when Tim told me about her, I said, you're joking. You, 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 y'all never heard anything from this? And he said, no, we, we didn't hit so many dead ends, Clay, in the years since Dad died. That we just thought they ran it down and didn't turn out anything. Well, I knew of her father and of her family. And uh, he worked in town. He was a mechanic at the Chevrolet dealership. And I went and spoke to him. He said, yeah. He said, uh, Lisa Holderman was her name. said, Lisa is living in uh, Goose Creek, South Carolina, and works in Charleston at an insurance agency. And he gave me her phone number. I called her that afternoon, and the next morning I was in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. She told the story, and the information that she gave was, was so critical and so key that it alone would have been absolutely enough to get uh, the search warrant. We did mm-hmm. found out some other things. We did some finances and that kind of thing. Because Connie Queen had been asked about this years ago. In her original statement, when she was asked about, you know, if she'd seen Fred Wilkerson because they were involved in this and that, she had made statements that when the probate hearing was held, they contradicted each other about the last mm-hmm. time she'd seen Fred. Nobody ever pointed that out, you know, or, or questioned it. Well, I, I did. And uh, with that, I was able to find a guy that she had actually commissioned in the end to cover the old well. You know, there's nothing out there. It's just a milk cow pasture, you know? Yes. So he showed me exactly where 
to the best of his recollection, where the well had been. And, uh, and within a few days, we uh, were able to get some equipment out there. We had a search warrant, pushed the ground off, and you could see the cylinder of the well. And about 20 feet down, we found Fred Wilkerson's body encased in carpet. The skeleton was encased in the clothes he was killed in. We tried her, convicted her. She uh, got life in prison. And today she is in uh, Alaska County State Women's Prison, where she will remain. Again, we had a, a lot of good help from a lot of good people. And the folks at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and Crime Lab, they were just Dr. Richard Snow is just one of the one of the greatest. And uh, he again came testified for us. It was the first time in Georgia history that an entire skeletal set of remains was brought into the courtroom as evidence in a trial. I believe it. Yeah, it was. And uh I, I said this, and this is something my dad would have said. It took that jury longer to elect a foreman than it did to convict. <laughs> yep. Buddy Bryant's statements. Yep. His words of wisdom coming through. It, yeah. It I remember reading in the book how cautious you were about keeping this on the down low. Mm-hmm. That you were doing this, getting the search warrant and moving things along. If you had been delayed. If, I know a lot of ifs, but if word had gotten out, do you think Lisa would have been in danger from Connie? I mean, speculation. She'd gotten away with it all these years. Connie Queens was capable of anything that furthered her cause. I didn't think as much about what she would do to Lisa because Lisa, at that point, she's in South Carolina and I hadn't had any contact with her. But this is how callous she was. During the investigation, we there were so many things. Her husband, Gary Queens, he strongly suspected what she had done. And I don't know as he didn't outright know. He had gone to visit a relative, him and the children. She was supposed to have gone that weekend. She told him she had to work for them to go on. And uh, when he came back, there was a pistol laying on the floor. And the purpose of that was that Gary picked it up. And if the thing had gone sideways at the start, the jealous husband, Mm -hmm. in and out, ex, remarried, whatever the situation was at at that time, he would have been the Mm -hmm. perfect pigeon. And she didn't mind, you know, (laughs) throwing him out there in case something went bad. She actually had a tape. And the only thing that I could say is was, it was a trophy to her. Right. She was served with that suit on Tuesday before she killed him. She called him on the phone because she never told anybody this. We found a little audio cassette, micro cassette. And in that, Fred is trying to apologize for having, for filing the suit. Well, I had to, you know, the, the bank, the, the guy that signed the note with me and da, 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 da. And and her words were, on this tape, in her possession, nearly 20 years after she killed this man, Red Wilkerson, you son of a bitch, I will kill you. Oof. And then she also had another tape. She was being involved with divorcing her soon-to-be ex-husband again while this was going on. She'd move him out, move in another man. It was just 
one thing after another. And uh, she uh, had him on the phone, and they were arguing about property in this divorce. She was saying, "Where? what happened? Where's my Walther pistol? And Gary Quedon says on the tape, Honey, there were three Walther pistols, two with consecutive serial numbers that I bought Marcus Smith's Gun City for the boys and the one that someone may have used at Fred's time. Yeah, he knew. He knew. He knew. But we need we needed his testimony so badly to solidify everything. Sometimes you deal with the devil to get the witch. And, yes. And we uh, offered him an immunity deal if he'd tell the truth about what happened that weekend, about him finding the gun and this and that and, and some other things. And he testified for us to my satisfaction truthfully in court. And uh, Good. as well did one of his children. He testified against his mother. I was amazed at that. Utterly amazed. I mean, good for him. Uh, yeah, and, and, but you, can you imagine the trauma that he'll live with the rest of his life, knowing what she did, knowing how she used people, and then him getting up in a court of law and having to say what he said? To be honest, he didn't have to do it. He was right minded. He, he was at the time he was still in the navy. He was a recruiter, I think. He was and a good person. He just did the right thing. Yeah. But he'd have been he'd been exposed to a tremendous amount of evil for most of his life, you know. And he still came I, out and did the right thing. Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean it was much to his credit. At the end of the cold case murder of Fred Wilkerson, you make mention of investigating her background, and mm-hmm. when she was at community college, you know there were rumors of you know a professor having an affair with a student, and oh my goodness, this professor just disappeared. And the only <laughs> clue was, go ahead and tell us. His car was found at the Richmond Airport. Bit of irony there. And there was mm-hmm. another thing that was even more disturbing. Connie had two sons, Garrett and Garrett. Garrett was the older. And um, he'd moved, moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and he'd married a Malaysian girl. And Connie, according to folks in the family, she was just upset about that. You know, she oh. had, they had some kin folks that were actually in the SS in Germany during World War II, and she got jacked up on this racial purity thing. And anyway, oh, wow. they come, they come, and they visit, and they go home on Sunday. On Tuesday. He presents at the Vanderbilt Medical Center, just deathly sick. By Thursday, died of organ failure. And they had no reason to suspect it because they were, you know, removed from the situation down here. And this was after, in the time that Fred was out in the well and before we had arrested her. Uh-huh. But I got to talking with the pathologist up there. And there was a life insurance policy on his board. And uh, everything that he presented with, I, I say everything, but symptoms that he brought to the medical center were consistent with ethylene glycol. Poison. Oh, my God. 
and, mm. but they never tested him for it. Because no. that leaves crystals in your liver and leaves all kinds of markers. But not if you're cremated. There you go. <laughs> I can't say that she did that, but... Uh, I know what I suspect. Wow. In my mind, she was capable of anything. She was purely evil. Today, Pulaski County, she's one of the leaders of the prayer group. Now. Isn't that amazing how that happens? There was a, a little thing that I said at the end of that. I said... You know, she'll spend the rest of her life in Pulaski County, and at the end of her sentence, she'll make one more stop. And if the devil's not careful, he'll find himself tangled up in a black widow's well. Mm-hmm. You better watch <laughs> yourself there. Ooh, make me feel sorry for the devil. What is next? What are you doing? More cold cases? More books? After this case, I've had a, a couple more, and they're, they're books, and they're coming. Uh, the next one that I'll write is on a young girl that was kidnapped in Newnan, Georgia in 1987. Her skeletal remains were found tied to a tree in Harris County, Georgia in uh, 89 by a forester. And the guy that killed her, we was able to go back and rebuild the case. A friend of mine with the GBI came and testified in another cold case murder that I'd worked in had some luck with, and he told me, his name's Gary Roth, a great guy, a good investigator. He said the case had been handed down to him. Three or four agents had it and did nothing with it. He said, and Clay, I was really, really close. He said, I lose sleep over this case. He said, we were right there to the point where I was going to be able, I think, get an indictment against the guy. And he said, I got promoted and transferred, and they handed it to somebody else, and nothing ever happened. He asked me if I'd look into the case. Uh, I did. I got the OGBI file. And we were able to uh, re life back into it, and we convicted. When he killed Yang Fosai, he was on parole for raping a child at gunpoint. Why he was on parole, I'll never know. And I'll never understood the sentence that he got. He got, I think, was sentenced to nine years. And this, this was in late 70s, early 80s. Again, he was out on parole when he did this. After he killed Fosai, he uh, kidnapped and, and raped and sodomized another woman. We did indict him on that one as well. We discovered that case and during this investigation. Hadn't gotten this book yet, but this is going to be a really good book. One of the strangest things that have ever happened to me. I was told by an ex-wife that he had been charged with a sexual assault in Chambers County, Alabama in the 80s. And I looked in the Superior Court records over there. Couldn't find them. I thought maybe it's in the adjacent counties. I looked in Randolph, Cleburne, and four or five counties around and nothing. It never existed. And uh, my wife, she's a clerk in the Superior Court, Criminal Court, Troop County, or was back at the time. And uh, she called me one afternoon and said, hey, we're going out to uh, Locos. And eat some wings and eat supper and probably have a drink. And she asked me, she said, you want to come out there with myself and the girls? Sure. And we go and we're there. I was doing research on the guy. You know, I was finding all his ex-wives. Want to dirt? <laughs> ex-wife, ex-girlfriend, you find him. Mm-hmm. So uh, clerk, Melanie Bowles, was at the table and she says, Clay. I have that information you wanted on 
Charles Travis Manley. And one of the girls that was at the table had invited her sister-in-law to come. I didn't know the young lady. She, I was introduced to her, but that's the first time I'd ever seen her in my life. And when Melanie mentioned him, I got up from the table. I think probably went and spoke to somebody. When I came back, this young woman met me. And I said, young woman, she was probably by the mid-late 30s. And uh, she said, Mr. Bryant, why were y'all talking about that man? And I said, you know, Manly? And she said, yes. I said, I think he might have committed a very serious crime that I'm investigating. She looked me straight in the face and said, he raped me in 1980, I think, five or six, whatever she said. She was the victim in the case that I couldn't find. What's the chance of that? I'm sitting at a table with the woman. God intended for that to happen. So the only thing you can, you can only, and I get chills every time I think about it. Mm-hmm. Back to that same thing. You know, I was lucky enough that God had used me as a vehicle to try to right some wrongs. Yeah, it was such a blessing. And you did. And you've used your God-given skills and intelligence and investigative abilities and being raised in a patrol car and put all of that to, to good work. Well, thank you so yep. much. I, I say it was a highlight of my professional career. And uh, I was proud of the work that we'd done. The NCIS actually invited me to Charleston, and they used one of my cases at a seminar, cold case seminar. The NCIS has the largest cold case squad in the world because they investigate on naval bases and marine bases. They have such a transient you know, population. And, yeah. uh, they came up uh, with a thing called the element of solvability. I'd taken my case files up there, and they said that during, during the time that I operated, that I was the most prolific cold case investigator in the United States. Well, how impressive is that? that I was, believe it. That was a, one of those things that you're just proud to death of, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it should be. I've been, I've been so blessed to be able, you know, people wear out the word closure. You know, you lose your father or a child, your mother. You know, you're not, not going to get closure. You might find some finality. But mm-hmm. their birthdays, their holidays, special occasions, things that happen that just, you know, births in the family, things that bring that person right back to you. And the the suffering that some of the people have to endure when they lose somebody like that, it's just unreal. And that's, that's that baggage I was talking about. Mm-hmm. You, once you make a connection with them and you see the pain that they endure, it gives you the strength and the fortitude to try to do all that you can, find some finality and some peace of knowing what happened? I have a, a little understanding of what you're saying. I'll just tell you very quickly. But, you know, I do true crime books and trilogies. And I did Killers of the Flower Moon about the Osage murders back in the, the 20s and 30s when the FBI was just being established. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole involved story. So when I got to the third part where I try to follow the the threads mentioned in the book, but not necessarily followed in the book. And I didn't really have anything for this book. So I contacted Cheryl McCollum, who you might be familiar with. Yep, the Cold Case Institute, right? And I said, Cheryl, I need a, a case from Oklahoma. Explain the whole story and whatnot. And she gave me the name Kristen Sue Richardson. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I networked around and I found there was a page on her 
missing Indigenous woman had gone missing in 2018 over Memorial Weekend in Muskegee, Oklahoma. Have strong suspects, but have not been able to close the case. And I did this story and I worked with the family. And silly me, I was so innocent and so naive. I thought I'd sit down and I'd speak to the family and I'd get the facts and I would just, you know, report it on my podcast and that would be it. It was months of research, (laughs) months and months and months, reaching out to the Muskegee Police Department. Mm -hmm. And it's still an ongoing case, but I still, that weekend, Memorial weekend, I talk to the family every year. The body's still missing. And when I get got an alert that there was a, a body found in Muskegee, we immediately, you know, all come together. So they are, they're family to me now. You know, they're, they're family. It's a bond that, you know, people doesn't, you can't understand it unless you experience it, you know? Yeah. Of the Fred book was written by Fred's daughter for me. Mm-hmm. You know, can you imagine for years walking around putting flyers up of what happened to my father? And the bad thing, suspecting what had happened, and nobody wanted to listen. You know, I always thought that it would be easy. Somebody comes in with a fresh set of eyes, and they look at a case, and you'd be welcomed with open arms. From the investigating agency. No. Now, not all the time. I've had situations where I was welcome with open arms and even asked to show up. And then I've also run into situations where I honestly feel like that the original case agency would have been happier if it had stayed just like it was. Because they, they look at it personally like it was an affront to them, you know. That was never nobody's intention. But if that's the way you feel, you need to go get you a job in a manufacturer. Keep your eyes on the prize. That's it. You, you're trying to solve a case, and egos don't have a place there. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for this, for sitting down. Murder Bookies, I know you've listened to the podcast, but you really need to read the books. There's a lot of gems in there that Clay and I both have not told you about. So you really need to see how the whole thing unfolds. Definitely read Fred's book. And I want the one from next year, maybe? Well, I hopefully to have it done by the fall. And uh, it'll be the cold case murder of Yang Fofasai. Evil dwells among us. Okay. I may have to have you back. I hope you do. I hope you do. I, I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for taking my books. And again, thank you. and. The work that you do, it's it's inspiring people, and Thank it means you. a lot. I hope so. In true crime, you don't always get a conclusion. Mm-hmm. You don't get that justice. And I'm not going to say you feel good about it, but you feel a sense of satisfaction that the, the bad guy was gotten. These stories, because of your investigative skills, man, these stories are uplifting. It gives people hope that you know maybe their case can be solved, too, to hang in there. Uh, you know, yeah. people's, people's morals change and they start to deal with their own mortality and mm-hmm. the way they feel, you know, they they get older, they have children. Folks might say something they never said before. Of course, and you still got the things now that none of mine really involved or solving the case, the technology that you have with DNA and whatnot. And it's so easy to forget. Sometimes it just comes down to good old police work. Mm-hmm. 
they just arrested a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case like last week. And that sounds like it was tracking cell phone records and burner phones. And, you know, there's some DNA in there, I think, for confirmation. His DNA to several other cases that they had in in the area and in the place he had lived in other places as well. You look at that case and you think, God, how in the world? With many red flags you saw, didn't somebody? It really is. And one final note. You mentioned Mayberry. Mm -hmm. That was my husband's hometown, which is where the Andy Griffith show was shot. He grew up in Mount Air, North Carolina, Mayberry itself. So this whole thing goes around in a nice big circle. (laughs) Again, I appreciate the opportunity, and I hope that anybody that reads the books enjoys them and just know there's always hope. Always. I appreciate it. You have a pleasant evening, huh? And there you are, Murder Bookies. The story of two cold cases, both from the same area, both involving a well, horrific perpetrators, and the brilliance of cold case investigator Clay Bryant. And a huge announcement. If you don't know already, I am on podcast row at CrimeCon 23 in Orlando, September 22nd to 25th. We did it. After CrimeCon Las Vegas last year, I vowed to be on Podcast Row next year, and we did this together. We have grown, we have improved, and I cannot thank you enough for listening, downloading, doing five-star reviews. I am so proud of what we have accomplished together. So if you're at CrimeCon, make sure you come by and say hello. I can't wait to meet you face-to-face and to talk. And I am now going to announce my next book, A Personal Crossover. The Death of Amy Robsart, an Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. So 28-year-old Amy Robsart was the wife of Queen Elizabeth I's favorite, Robert Dudley. In September 1560, she was found dead, her neck broken at the bottom of a flight of stairs in Cumnor Place. Her marriage to Robert Dudley had long been characterized by absences and stymied ambitions. Some said she was ill, others said she was depressed. More sinister rumors talk of murder. In this book, we look at Amy's unsolved death and examine who had the motive to commit such a dark deed. Was it an accident, suicide, or murder? And of course, I will share my conclusion based on the evidence. So read along with me, and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me, and I really need your help. Take a few minutes to leave an awesome review that will help me make new Murder Bookies. Please share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Join Patreon. It is so much fun. New summer designs are out on my spread shop, so get your merch. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with all of my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and our wine pairing. Always trust your gut, lock your doors and windows, and do not park next to vans. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena 
and lyrics by Otto Harbach.